0: and a very big welcome to our 50th
1: episode of Africa, Past and Present. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oladji. And it is our pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Horace Campbell uh, to the program, Professor of African American Studies and Political Science at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. He's been an activist and a scholar for over 40 years, Uh, At Syracuse, he's also the director of the Africa Initiatives, and he works in the wider community as an activist for peace. Uh, He's published widely. Uh, His most important book, Rasta and Resistance, from Marcus Garvey to Walter Rodney, is now in its sixth uh, edition. Uh, Perhaps Bob Marley, Professor Campbell, is a good place to start uh, in today's
2: program. Um, It is, actually, because this year, it's 30 years since Bob passed away. And he passed away in March, in May, 1981. And many within our movement, that is the wider peace and justice movement, see Bob as a prophet. And Bob hailed up the spirit of unity between peoples. And he carried the spirit of Ubuntu, as you know, The song of the century was called One Love, and Bob Marley carried the ideas of love between human beings, which comes from the basic philosophy of the Rastafari, peace and love. But while promoting peace and love, Bob also said it takes a revolution to make a solution, so that he was aware of the injustice of the present social system. So although he belonged to a movement, that had many contradictions, out of that movement came some of the most brilliant ideas about revolution. And like Che Guevara, he believed that a true revolutionary is guided by the spirit of love.
0: And the winds of revolution have been blowing uh, across North Africa and maybe across the Sahara. Our last episode focused on the revolutionary changes in Tunisia, uh, Libya, and, and Egypt. And, um, we thought perhaps we could uh, start by talking about these reverberations uh, w- and, and also perhaps the the approach of the African Union, the AU, or, or what its approach might be in the future. In other words, what do these uh, revolutionary changes in North Africa and the Middle East mean to Africans?
2: Well, thank you very much. As we started out with Bob Marley, and Bob Marley was a transnational figure in fact that if you go to Japan or Malaysia or India or Russia, people love Bob Marley. And so the ideas of of revolution are transnational ideas. But what we have seen since January 2001 is the change of a lifetime. What we've seen since January 2001 is that we've had the movement of human beings in Africa want to change the social system under which they live. The most dramatic event was that of Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia, this young person who sacrificed himself to be able to make a statement about the inability of the social system to give meaning to the lives of young people. Here is someone who has been to school working as a vegetable seller and fruit seller with the police harassing him, and yet, his cohorts, after he was buried, mobilized with a new form of mobilization, new energy in the revolutionary process. So the question we have to ask, what are the objective conditions in Tunisia and Egypt that gave rise to the revolution? And what were the actual forms of organization and mobilization that made these revolutions successful. If we ask those two questions, then we will begin to have an answer to see why the revolution is spreading across from Tunisia to Egypt to Libya, Morocco, Algeria, right across to Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Jordan, Syria, and in Africa. Um, Djibouti, Swaziland, uh, Cameroon, Gabon. In other words, in all parts of Africa and the Middle East, we now have an intersection of the Pan-Arab and Pan-African revolution. The confluence of these two tendencies in international politics, as on Earth, at the creativity of peoples whose energies have been bottled up by dictators for over 50 years. So the creativity and energy that we saw from Mohamed Bouazizi, we saw it reproduce with Azma Mahfouz in Egypt. And here we saw, in the case of Egypt, um, new ideas, new forms of organization, and new principles of revolution. We saw how democratization processes really work in the midst of revolution, how the young people who formed the April 6th movement were able to bring new ideas to the table. I need to mention five that has been mentioned by Egyptian scholars. First, the confidence of the people that they could take on the regime and defeat the regime. Secondly, the centrality of the youth in mobilizing. Third, the centrality of women. Fourth, the transcending of sectarian issues so that questions of religion between Muslims and Christians did not divide them. And five, the importance of the working class and how the working class came out. And then when they were able to do this and neutralize the army, the Egyptian revolution, after 18 days, bringing 20 million persons on the street, have brought a new idea on the forms of revolution for the 21st century. So the revolution is in its early stages, and we are seeing in in Libya that, and in Bahrain that there are some leaders who will decide that rather than giving up power, they will repress the people. But everywhere in Africa, people are now studying what they did in Egypt so that the ideas of revolutionary organization will take a new force in the politics of the world. Because in the 20th century, we had all the forms of revolution built around a charismatic leader, a political party, and a vanguard organization. Now in the 21st century, we have the, the forms of literacy of the young people who are turning the social media media, into instruments of communication and inspiration, and this is spreading light, wildfire. This revolution, not even Gaddafi can stop this revolution by using violence against the people in Libya.
1: Well, speaking of Gaddafi, of course, the Libyan situation Uh, is turning out to be quite different from the Egyptian revolution we witnessed uh, just a few weeks ago, right? I mean, first and foremost, you have uh, the use of violence against civilians on the part of the uh, regime in question. Uh, On the other hand, you have uh, military bombings on the part of the U.S.-led Western uh, coalition under the authority of uh, the recent United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973 uh, that establishes the no-fly zone over Libya. Uh, this has changed the, the dynamics and the equation ra- radically, I would, I would argue. Uh, you recently published a piece in Pambazuga News online in which you oppose both Gaddafi's uh, violence as well as foreign intervention in Libya. Uh, tell us a little bit about your
2: position. Can you explain it for us, please? Well, if the Egyptian revolution is at the intersection of the Pan-African and Pan-Arab revolution, then all across Africa and across the Middle East, this revolution will displace all forms of imperial domination, all forms of plunder, and all forms of division. So the Western world that backed up these dictators. Ben Ali was backed up by Western European and and United States. So did Mubarak. What we will see is that in any revolutionary situation, no political power gives up power without a fight. And so in the midst of revolution, one will find counter-revolution. We'll see that counter-revolution already in Yemen. We see the counter-revolution in Bahrain and in Saudi Arabia, which Saudi Arabia sending troops to Bahrain to repress the people. Now, Gaddafi in Libya is also an agent of counter-revolution because in the case of Libya, the aspirations of the people for change, these aspirations have been stymied because Gaddafi said he's gonna call these people cockroaches and treat them like rats. And so this kind of language means that Gaddafi delegitimized himself as a leader and opened up the conditions for revolutionary change. Unfortunately, one is not clear about who the social forces are that have formed that transnational, transitional council in Benghazi who want to remove um, um, Gaddafi. And their maturation and the co- cohesiveness of this force will determine the contours of the Libyan re- revolution. What we have seen is that the very same international financial and military agents who supported Gaddafi, the very same forces are the same forces who are fighting against Gaddafi. So the peoples of Africa, the peoples of the Middle East are challenged by this military intervention. So the Question for the peace movement internationally is, how could the peace movement support the people of Libya without the overt military aggression that we have seen from NATO? In 1936, we had the international brigades of the Spanish Civil War. We do not have such international brigades now. But what we have seen from from Wisconsin and Egypt, that there's a new... International solidarity that is gelling, and that international solidarity must be built to sideline governments in France, Britain and the United States who are quite willing to expend billions of dollars on bombs but are cutting back on education, on health care, and on basic social services in their country.
0: And what role in this emerging scenario might the African Union play? Because they have, after all, been sidelined. Uh, They did try and have emissaries come into Libya to broker some uh, peaceful change, but they seem to have been sidelined. Is there a need for a a new kind of an AU?
2: Well, Well, the African Union will be central. It will be central, and I say this, because if this is a revolutionary process, and the revolutionary process is in its infancy, and we will see another four or five years of the maturation of the revolution, then many of the leaders of the African Union who are there today will not be there because as the revolution develops, very few persons would have said that Mubarak could be overthrown with that vast police state apparatus. So as the revolution develops in Africa, the African Union could take shape by removing the dictators that now represent themselves as revolutionaries, such as Meles Zenawi in Ethiopia, such as Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Yuri Museveni in um, Uganda. So the the revolutionary movement that we're seeing in North Africa and in Africa is at the same time a moment to energize the young people in Africa that they must take a stand against people like Robert Mugabe and Meles Zenawe. So in that sense, the African Union will be relevant, but at the moment when we're speaking on on March 25th, um, 2011, the African Union cannot play a role because it's basically a club for dictators. They've just demonstrated their orientation by electing to be the chairperson, the president of Equatorial Guinea. So um, that tells us what kind of African Union there is. A dictator. Uh, A dictator, Mm. but we have to be very careful that we do not throw out and throw away the African Union because of these forces, because the African Union comes from a deep yearning of the African people from the time of Marcus Garvey through um, Kwame Nkrumah. And it's Bob Marley again who sang the anthem of the African unity when he sang that Africans should unite. So this is an old principle. And most Africans believe in the unity of Africa. I don't know if you've been to East Africa, but you know the Maasai, they do not believe in the border between Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, the people who are Yoruba do not believe in the borders between Nigeria and Benin. So. All across Africa, we have these borders that are artificial. But the real border that exists in Africa is the border between the super-rich and the poor. And what the African Union we're looking for is how to unite the masses of the people against that 1%, like Ben Ali and Mubarak and the Gaddafi family.
1: And
0: beyond those borders in Africa, of course, there's the African diaspora and the African Union's fifth division is the diaspora and your latest book uh, Professor Campbell is about Barack Obama and uh, revolutionary ideas. How does Obama, how does the diaspora fit into these uh, changes, this confluence as you mentioned of Pan-Arab and Pan-African transformations. Um, Is Barack Obama being left behind in its wake?
2: Well, I I would want to separate Barack Obama from the diaspora, because Barack Obama did not represent himself in his campaign as an African. Barack Obama was straddling United States politics. So let us deal with the diaspora first, and then we probably could say a word or two about Barack Obama. The, The diaspora has gained inspiration from what's happened in Egypt and in Tunisia. We have seen that in Latin America, the African Descendants Caucus of Latin America, they have been at the forefront of calling for the United Nations Year of the African Descendants. And so in countries such as Brazil, Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia, Honduras, there are vibrant African descendant communities who are fighting for the basic right to be citizens because the idea of racial democracy in Latin America eroded the discussion about racism and the marginalization and exploitation of Africans. Now, the African diaspora in the United States of America have a very long history of anti-racist, anti-militarist, and anti-exploitation struggles, and insofar as within our communities in the United States of America, in Detroit, in um, Cleveland, they are suffering. The, 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 they are they're they're suffering the most from the capitalist crisis. Then the African diaspora must be working with the African people to conceptualize a new social system, because the system of capitalism is not one that is geared for the upliftment and dignity of human beings everywhere. Which brings me to the question about Barack Obama. Barack Obama was searching for his own dignity as a human being. And in the quest to affirm his dignity as a human being, he decided to enter into the political process and the political system. But Barack Obama became the president of the United States And the United States is an imperialist, militaristic society. So Barack Obama is trapped by the power and the office of the United States. Whatever agency that Barack Obama will have and can have will depend on the strength of the peace movement, will depend on the strength of the environmental justice movement, the anti-racist movement, the movement for health. And so I, in my book, place the focus on the fact that it is the people who elected Barack Obama and Wall Street will try to put blockage to Barack Obama. And the, his agency will depend on our agency, that is the extent to which we work with the people of Wisconsin, the people of Michigan, the people of Ohio who want to get collective bargaining rights, who want to get rights for health care, rights for education. The, the Wisconsin is like a turning point in Egypt, where the working people have to get beyond the divisions based on migration and race, so that the working people can assert themselves in the politics in the United States.
0: And the details of your new book are?
2: The, the, the new book uh, um, details the, the, the what we call the bottom-up process of organizing, which is coming from fractal thinking. Fractal thinking is different from Newtonian and um, mechanical thinking, which is adopted by both Marxists on the left and by um, liberals on the right. And that is based on hierarchy, based on powerful individuals. And the, the, the Obama election campaign was an example of how when the people are mobilized, in self-organization and self-mobilization, they can change the political um, calculus. Now, Obama tapped into that energy among the young people, among all the social forces, and the book is arguing that Obama is not a messiah and that he himself cannot change the society and we must go back to look at the history of the working-class struggles in this country and the struggles of persons such as Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass that they were able to push Lincoln at a certain period in history and that it's possible in the United States because we're in the midst of a capitalist depression in this depression the social costs of capitalism will be placed on the backs of the working peoples. Let me give you two examples. When Wall Street was bailed out in September 2008, the private debt became a public debt, trillions of dollars. Now the capitalist class want to put that public debt on the backs of working peoples. It is up to us to ensure that the working peoples do not pay the cost for the capitalist class, and therefore we must organize to ensure, as we were coming the elevator, you said in Michigan that General Motors paid no tax. Why is it the corporations do not pay taxes? Why is it we do not have a financial transaction tax? A 1% tax on derivatives could bring in trillions of dollars. So it's not a financial question that we are facing, it's a political question. That's one area where we have to work to shift the political balance. The second area is probably the one that is most urgent, that is cleaning up the environment. That is, the cost of the destruction of the natural environment by the the system of um, fossil fuels is something that will ensure that at the end of the century, we will not have a planet. And therefore, the question of repair and reparations requires a new concept of work and a new concept of society. So the book is talking about 21st century politics long beyond the life of Barack Obama. Mm. If we're going to have a planet in the 21st century, then we have to have a revolution to change the social system.
0: And the book is published by?
2: The book is published by Pluto Press in London. And the title? The title is Barack Obama and 21st century politics, a revolutionary moment in the United States of America and this revolutionary moment is the moment we're in and in fact the title should have been a revolutionary moment in the world because we've seen the way revolution is spreading throughout the world
1: one of the reactions of course to this revolutionary moment is uh, further militarization and uh, the economic crisis not just in the united states but in the west and in the world um is is preoccupying on a whole number of levels uh i'm thinking here of Naomi Klein's uh, The Shock Doctrine Mm. uh, in which she basically, you know, makes a, a persuasive case that, you know, um, these these crises, environmental and, and military and political and, and economic and so on, are used as an excuse to rewrite mm. entire economies, entire societies by very powerful interests. Mm. Uh, what about AFRICOM as a new force on the map, uh, on the geopolitical map, this Africa command of the United States, which is currently based in Germany, looking for a home on the African continent? Mm. Uh, how will this current crisis uh, in, in the world economy, but also the current the revolutionary moment in North Africa affect the future of AFRICOM?
2: Well, the revolutionary moment is a moment when all the ideas, forms of organization, practices, and even forms of coercion falls into abeyance. And we use the last revolutionary moment, the last major revolutionary moment in the United States. It was a moment when the United States Army was split. This was the moment of the Civil War when fellows who were in West Point studying together were fighting each other on the battlefield because the question of whether the republic would be a republic based on slavery or based on free human beings broke the army in two. I think we are at a point where the military is getting to such a split. And I call this split in the military the split between the rocks and the crusaders. Recently, Seymour Hersh has written about those in the military that he calls the crusaders. Those are the ones who do not believe that should salute Barack Obama and that they would be fighting against Islam. This militarization means that in the military itself, there are sections of the military with an allegiance to capital and to capitalism and a section of the military who have an allegiance to the Constitution of the United States of America. Because of this division in the military, the capitalist class in the United States of America have gone about setting up private military corporations. These private military corporations are the preparation for that moment when the United States military will split. Why? 40% of the rank and file of the military in the United States come from poor people, blacks, and Hispanics. And they will not shoot down their brothers and sisters in the street in New York or Philadelphia or Washington DC. So what we have is the capitalist class, Carlisle, Cerebus, Halliburton, all of these setting up private military corporations. I have just found out recently that Cerebus, this um, Private capital management fund own DynCorp, one of the biggest private military corporations. What is, does this have to do with Africa, the Africa Command? The Africa Command, at the present moment, is basically an ideological front for U.S. capitalism in Africa. The command is not a structure similar to the European Command or the Pacific Command or the. Um, Southern Command, it does not have the capabilities, or to use a military term, the assets, to actually engage in combat. There's 1,500 persons in the Africa Command based in Stuttgart in Germany because it is opposed in Africa. What they have done, however, is the Africa Command is a subcontractor for the private military corporations. For example, in a country such as Equatorial Guinea, the um, MPRI has the contract to train that dreaded dictator. So we have to ask ourselves, how is it the State Department is giving a license to um, the um, MPRI? And when you read about the um, Africa Command getting an arrangement with the government of the DRC to train um, people, then this contract is given to a private military contractor. The best example is in Liberia, where where, um, DynCorp has the contract to train the Liberian Liberian government, and the RAND Corporation write the document about how to retrain the Liberian government. DynCorp have the contract, and the same Liberian politicians then say, we want Africa Command in Africa. Unfortunately for them, we have... A generation of African officers, young Af- officers below the rank of colonel, in all countries in Africa, who are dead set against Africa Command, and they would be barking up the wrong tree if they decide to forcefully force their way in Africa beyond the ideological thing. I was in a hospital, in um, I was in a hospital, in in Ghana, and in this hospital, I was interacting with a, a, a medical person who was trained in Cuba. And you could see his level of competence in running this hospital. And he had persons in that, that hospital from Sierra Leone, from neighboring countries. So there is a relationship of young, younger officers in Africa where the ignorance of the Africa Command persons will show up. We are told that this new head of Africa Command, his name is General Ham. He doesn't know anything about Africa, and he's going to be learning on the go. And the others, he's going to be trained on the job. That's how much disrespect they have for Africa. So the Africa Command doesn't have a, a long way to go. Its biggest work right now is in the area of social sciences to try to. And um, Professor David Wiley has spoken about that about the fact that they have been spending money doing research on Africa when the universities do not have money to train graduate students. That's where we have to combat them, in the universities, because they're basically a force for neoliberalism and a force for the oil companies and foreign companies in Africa.
0: Well, these are are big issues uh, requiring us uh, to pause, to think, and to act. Thank you, Horace Campbell, very much for talking to Africa, past and present.
2: Well, thank Africa past and present, and as we said earlier, that we have to recognize the contribution of the Rastafari, we have to recognize the contribution of the women, we have to recognize the contribution of youth. It's not only the people in universities. I myself, I was inspired by the Rastafari to study Africa and to learn about Africa, and it's that inspiration from the Rastafari that keeps me going, because we know that the ideas of peace and love are universal.
1: Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod.aodl.org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.